0: I'm it's really so like annoyed what ones, was I gonna oh now I remember what I was gonna say yes good morning everyone and welcome to the pleasure of the text podcast we're your hosts Shannon and Garrett
1: good morning Shannon
0: Good morning, Gareth, and I am so excited for today because I finished reading uh, Murder in the Dark last night, and this is my second reading through. Uh, Murder in the Dark is by Margaret Atwood. She is such a phenomenal writer and still at 82. She's going strong. Um, I think this year she just released an inflammable book of The Handmaid's Tale because it's been uh, banned across America so often, so she's really witty, and that's what I love about Margaret Atwood. She's just so much fun, uh, and that's definitely something that is in this book. Um, So before we go deeper, I'll do a bio on Margaret Atwood. So Margaret Atwood, uh, born 1939, is a Canadian poet, novelist, literary critic, essayist, teacher, environmental activist, and inventor. Since 1961, she's published 18 books of poetry, 18 novels, 11 books of non-fiction, nine collections of short fiction, eight children's books and two graphic novels, and a number of small press editions of both poetry and fiction. Atwood has won numerous awards and honours for her writing, including two Booker Prizes, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Governor General's Award, the Franz Kafka Prize, Princess of Austurias Awards, and the National Book Critics and Penn Centre USA Lifetime Achievement Awards. And a number of her works have been adapted for film and television. So incredible uh, bio there. She's a very accomplished woman. And a bit more. So Atwood's work encompasses a variety of themes, including gender and identity, religion and myth, the power of language, climate change and power politics. Many of her poems are inspired by myths and fairy tales, which interested her from a very early age. So, Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's an impressive resume, isn't it?
0: Very impressive, and um, she doesn't think so. She doesn't think she's prolific as um, Carol Oates. She just thinks she's old. But come on, I think you are an amazing woman, Margaret Atwood. Credit where credit is due.
1: Oh my God! Yeah, absolutely. Now let's let's run her through the vs Nepal test. How does she match up to vs Nepal? Uh, now obviously she hasn't achieved nearly as much as he has. Oh wait, no, she actually has. So so how would you how would you rate Margaret Atwood seriously in terms of the you know, writers of the last uh fifty years or so? Where do you think she sits?
0: Very high up there. Um and I remember you saying that a Nobel Prize is the career award and it baffles me that she hasn't hasn't won a Nobel Prize as our Uh, our favoured VS Nepal, Um, but I highly doubt that he has such uh, credentials behind his name besides that uh, pretty laureate on top of his head. Just knock that off, why don't we? Um, But yeah, I think she's an amazing writer. And in terms of working into the review on her book, I just want to say if you're not into fun, you're not going to enjoy her books because they really are just a whole collection of her making fun of writing
1: yeah she does she does make it fun she's it's full of joy also full of sadness um but it's oh, a sadness yeah. that makes you feel like you're learning something uh and yeah yeah no she's she's quite stunning margaret atwood i am hard pressed to think of a more important writer of the last 50 years i think i think it's a really um she'd have to be in the conversation and she would be my pick for for at least in the Western tradition of literature, she'd definitely be my pick for the most important writer of the last fifty years. So, and why do you that say that? You will. Um, well, she's written a great a great deal of um, important books. That was a strange sentence. I'm a bit tired, folks. She's written quite a, quite a few important books. She she is prolific. Um, I think her influence on on literature the literature of today is pretty profound. You can you can see her stylistic flourishes all over the place. Uh there's Atwood DNA floating everywhere. It's like pollen. You can't avoid it. Uh I think that um she wrote well, with the Handmaid's Tale, she wrote a book that Though it didn't win the Booker Prize, it should definitely have been in the argument for the, uh, you know, the best Booker Prize winning novel ever. Um, I know, right? That's confusing. Uh, but I think Salman yeah, Rushdie
0: has that title for Midnight's He Midnight does with Charts. Midnight's
1: Children, yeah, hours, but I, I, do, I, I dispute it. Um, but then again, I'm not on the board, am I? So there you go. <laughs> I like uh, Gareth to the board. Yeah, right. Let me just say what things should be. Um, And, yeah, I I just think that, you know, if you follow her work, if you read her work, she's so adventurous. She does so many things, you know, in 2000. I think it was 2000. um, Oh, I'm going to blank out. What was the book we were talking about just the other day of hers? Uh,
0: The Blind Assassin?
1: Yeah, thank you. The Blind Assassin, you know, in, in in her 60s. She pulls it. Oh, well played, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Shannon pulls up the hardback just like she knew what I was going to mumble out.
0: I thought it um, would come up today, so I, I thought I'd pull it off the shelf.
1: Well, I'm impressed. I'm really impressed. I couldn't even think of the title. But, yeah, that won the book, uh, Um And, uh, you know, it's a postmodern novel. She did something quite different with the postmodern novel at the age of 60, which is impressive because, you know, we're all going downhill uh, and, yeah, I just I am constantly fascinated by what she's going to do next. She seems agel- ageless to me. I don't think there's anyone more important in the writing scene than Margaret Atwood
0: at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and, I mean, in terms of talking about ageless and producing, um, I don't know if I can agree that she's going downhill because I think she is moving into the graphic novel um, scene at the moment. Catbird. Act of- yeah. Um, mm. When did she release those? And I think she's still building on the series. Sorry. I, don't know. I put you uh, on the it, spot there, Gareth.
1: It, it, it was, I think within the last 10 years, the two of them. Mm. Um, I've read them. Uh, they're very interesting. I should just clarify. I didn't say she was going downhill. I was saying we were all going downhill. You know, as, <laughs> as dear listeners, you're listening to this, you know, you're slowly aging. So I hope you find this a good use of your time. Um, yeah, no, she she goes from strength to strength. I think she's ageless, um, though she probably isn't. So hopefully she'll put out another book soon.
0: Yeah, and just a, a cheeky plug here because it would just be our dream to get Margaret Atwood on uh, the pleasure of the text. It would just be oh yeah. If anyone has any connections, just, you know, slide it out there. And, you know, because I'm giving this book a five-star review, because <laughs> we love you, Margaret Atwood, um, but that's not why. I think I'm giving it a five-star review because it's such a great um, collection of short stories. I've uh, highlighted – oh, sorry, you go,
1: Gareth. I thought you said that you found some of them were not as effective. I thought, Shannon, that we were going into this podcast with me going five stars, goddammit, and you were going to say like three and a half or four. That's what I imagined. What has oh,
0: changed? Okay. Um, what has changed? So yeah. as I mentioned, I've read this twice now, and um, we mentioned this in a previous podcast. My prior reading... Uh, It takes me a while to get into a new person's voice, a new person's tone. And upon the second reading, I'm like, yeah, I understand you, um, Margaret, and I understand what you're trying to do here, and I'm incredibly impressed. Um, With the case of any collection of short stories, you're going to have your really poppy strong ones and your so-so one, But that depends on the reader as well. And on the second reading, I was just impressed over and over and over again. So... I don't know if we're going to have a lot to disagree on because it's a five star from me.
1: Yeah. It's a five star from me too. Um, I don't think most people would say it's one of her best books. Uh, but for me, it's like the, the center of her au revoir. Mm. This is her most important book to me. Um So that's, that's, you know, we talk about great fiction and how it changes lives and people go back to it again and again and again, like your Jane Austen's and your Dickens. Okay. So this is my Jane Austen. This, this one here, it's not a great cover, is it?
0: No. um, The later edition with the blue cover and the woman's face um, is a lot nicer.
1: And there's the one with the little chalky hand pulling off the light. Which is not oh, yeah. so very good, yeah, yeah. But I got this one. I think it's a Virago Modern Classic, believe it or not, which ties in is wonderfully it? well. I believe so. It's got the little apple, got the little oh, apple it does there, too. folks. Yeah, I think it's. I think that's what it is. Um, and it's not a huge shock because this is the book that directly precedes A Handmaid's Tale. Uh, and mm. any time a book kind of pushes the needle. You'll find that the book directly in front of that kind of gets blown away uh, and lost a little bit. Um, but I so, guess my question to you would be: What is this book? Like, like people say, it's prose poetry. You said it was short stories. Uh, is that is that what you would call it? Um, what is this book?
0: It's a collection.
1: It is a col- well. Yes, it's a collection. <laughs>
0: Um, well, some, they are short stories and short stories have their own subgenre within them. So you've got vignettes and you've got longer pieces, you've got shorter pieces. But um, she can say so much in very little space. So uh, the first part of this book, you have a few, so Autobiography, Making Poison, The Boy's Own, Annual 1911 and Horror Comics. Um, oh, amazing! There's a line out of uh, making poison that you really appreciated, Gareth.
1: Yeah, there is. She, she—it's a real zinger at the end. I—I I don't know. Should I say? I suppose it doesn't hurt, does it? But but I feel like there might need to be a slight lead up. Um, oh okay. yeah. So this one's called making poison. When I was five, my brother and I made poison. We were living in the city then but we probably would have made the poison anyway. We kept it in a paint can under somebody else's house and we put all the poisonous things into it that we could think of. Toadstools, dead mice, mountain ash berries, which may not have been poisonous, but looked it. Piss which we saved up in order to add to the paint can. By the time the can was full, everything in it was very poisonous. The problem was that once having made the poison, we couldn't just leave it there. We had to do something with it. We didn't want to put it into anyone's food, but we wanted an object, a completion. There was no one we hated enough. That was the difficulty. I can't remember what we did with the poison in the end. Did we leave it under the corner of the house, which was made of wood and brownish yellow? Did we throw it at someone, some innocuous child? We wouldn't have dared an adult. Is this a true image I have, a small face streaming with tears and red berries, the sudden knowledge that the poison was really poisonous after all? Or did we throw it out? Do I remember those red berries floating down a gutter into a culvert? Am I innocent? Why did we make the poison in the first place? I can remember the glee with which we stirred and added, the sense of magic and accomplishment. Making poison is as much fun as making a cake. People like to make poison. If you don't understand this, you will never understand anything. Um, so, yeah, I really like that last line. And I, I think that's true, don't you? Yes. It feels like she's just touching a tiny bit of yourself that you know isn't that good. Um, and sort of is like she's tickling it, going, oh, it's all right. But it's very provocative and a bit unsettling and also weirdly comforting. (laughs) Yeah. And in terms
0: of the making fun, so in that story, you don't know if the narrator is innocent or not because she presents either or I could have done this or did I do this? You don't know. Um, And that, uh, that, that is an example of kind of the play that is all throughout uh, this collection.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, if we hadn't called ourselves The Pleasure of the Text, we could have called ourselves Murderers in the Dark because um, this book is all about how readers and writers make meaning together, like if you really wanted to boil it down. Um, It's described as one of two collections of short fiction. So not short stories, but short fiction. Other people I've seen have called these vignettes. So they don't really function as stories, Per se, they function as uh, well. Well, vignettes. It's it's very difficult to find another way to describe it.
0: Mm.
1: Um, tiny little scenes that just kind of shift your dial constantly, and you're like, oh ah, e," uh, all the way through. It's it's quite delightful. It's like touching a live wire, and you know, yeah. not ending up dead.
0: She does the, she produces the same feeling um, that you get in making poison in horror comics for me at least oh. yeah there's a wonderful line in um, horror comics which again touches on that that feeling and you can't quite capture it the essence of it but you know something's happened there quite it's very visceral. Um, did you want to read a horror comics?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go, horror comics. Um, I believe, too, she's talking about the kind of EC horror comics that would have been very popular at the time in her youth. Um, lots of lurid witches, and the, she mentions green and purple. Oh, and she has the word lurid. Um, and, yeah, absolutely, it, that's it exactly. Horror comics. When I was 12, my friend C and I used to pinch horror comics from the racks in drugstores. They are only ten cents then. We would read them on the way home from school, dramatising the different parts, in radio voices with sound effects, to show we were above it. The blood was too copious and lurid. The faces were green and purple, the screams overdone. We leaned against the low stone wall outside the funeral home, laughing so much that C, whose mother said she should never use the school toilets for fear of catching some unspecified disease, had to cross her legs and beg me to stop. "'I'm really a vampire, you know,' I'd say in a conversational tone as we walked along, licking our lime popsicles, those we paid for. "'No, you aren't,' C said, a voice uncertain. "'You know I am,' I said quietly. "'You don't have to be afraid of me, though. You're my friend.' I dropped my voice an octave. "'I'm really dead, you know.' "'Stop it,' said C. "'Stop what?' I said innocently. "'I'm only telling you the truth.' This occupied the four blocks between the funeral parlour and the gas station. After that, we would switch to boys. In winter, when it was dark after school, we threw snowballs at grown-ups from behind, being careful to miss, doubling up with laughter because they didn't even know they were being aimed at. Once we even hit someone, a middle-aged woman in a muskrat coat. She turned around and looked at us, white-faced and glaring. We ran away, shrieking with guilty laughter, and threw ourselves backwards into a snowbank around the corner, holding our stomachs. The look on her face, we screamed, but we were terrified. It was the look on her face, pure hatred, real after all. The undead walked among us.
0: Ah, oh, so good.
1: are they beautiful? So you can see why some people say prose poems. I don't think that's what they are, though. Um, Margaret Atwood had published more... When this came out in 83, she'd published uh, more poetry than she had prose. Yeah. Um, and I think she would have defined herself as a poet at that point in time.
0: Yeah. Um, I was listening to a podcast before jumping on, and uh, it was a bit of a backstory. So she grew up in Canada, and um, she, uh, in year nine, she was saying how Uh, women only had five choices of what they could do after they'd left school. It was a nurse, a school teacher, home economics, a secretary. Oh, what was the other one? Did I say flight stewardess?
1: No, you didn't, but that sounds about right.
0: Yeah. So um, she looked it up because she wanted to know which one made the most money and she ended up in home economics. And eventually she did not want to do that. She said, and she told her family that she wanted to do writing. So she was writing for 16 years before she saw any, was able to support herself as a writer. And in that 16 years, she mostly did poetry, which they used to go together with their friends to uh, coffee shops in Canada and do poetry readings. And they just used to share the poetry among themselves and edit each other's work and hang out on each other's couches So it was a very different era, I think, to what we have now, where there's such a um, people don't.
1: uh... Well, I mean, there's. I think there's a bit less of a live scene, and that's a real shame. Mm. Um, but you have far, far uh, a greater number of avenues by which to get your work out there, which may or may not be a good thing. Um, I think Margaret Atwood comes to us fully formed. Yeah, that is
0: true. Because I think a lot of um, beginning writers jump the gun because, you know, you can self-publish with a Kindle um, and n- no one's really looking at your work unless you're paying for an editor, which could be really expensive. But within this cohort of colleagues uh, developing her poetry, her prose, so forth, there were friends of friends that were um, editing each other and developing each other and growing each other. And a thing that really impresses me about Margaret Atwood is that she never envisioned herself, firstly, making money from writing. It was just the pure pleasure of writing. And then secondly, uh, in this podcast, she referenced all her influences. So she read 1984 when it first came out, and she had um, this desire to write the same thing, but uh, with females, Uh, that's how we get... um, Handmaid's Tale, and she oh. also mentions Ursula Le Guin and how uh, she's very jealous that uh, she can write dragons where she never thought she could.
1: Yeah, dragons are no joke. I wouldn't even try to write a dragon. Not mm. write a dragon, folks, write a dragon. Actually, I wouldn't do either.
0: <laughs> well, the dragons in um, Ursula Le Guin are very smart and intelligent, whereas the ones that we get on TV now um, – she said they're like bazookas, especially on uh, Game of Thrones. They're just fire everywhere, very uh, English-inspired dragons.
1: Yeah, they're also uh, very conquerable dragons. Um, so we, last uh, last episode we were talking about male and female riding. I would suggest that a trope in male riding is that things can be conquered and that's less of a thing in women's riding. So what you find with the dragons in Le Guin... Uh, is that they are inexplicable things. You can barely describe them. They are so far beyond people. Uh, you know, we're barely able to not go mad looking at them. We're certainly not conquering them. Um, and I think that's what makes our dragons so so stunning. And, of course, Atwood can appreciate that because I think Atwood manages to, in some ways, uh, sprinkle that magic through, through most situations. They feel kind of exotic. Even the mundane things seem tremendously exotic, and quite exotic things can paradoxically seem very familiar, if if not mundane. It's fascinating, and I and I would say this is the thing I most wanted to say on this podcast. And I'm uh, the book is broken into four sections. Section three, which begins with the title story "Murder in the Dark," and it goes through. A story called Simmering, which is probably worth talking about.
0: Oh, Women's yes, I've written novels, that one down. Which,
1: which relates to uh, what we talked about last episode Happy Endings, Bread, and the Page. That's the uh, collection of short fiction. How these six pieces aren't the backbone of every writing course in the world, I'll never know, because there is an enormous amount that can be learned from those. Uh, six pieces and i think our goal moving forward is to build some uh writing exercises around these pieces which won't be hard cuz they they scream out here's a writing exercise you could do um and so we'll we'll share that with everyone and i think it it's pretty pretty impressive stuff that i love the whole book but the third section's the one that left me lying on the floor flat out and super impressed bowled over
0: I knew you were going to bring up this section because um, let's talk about simmering so I did highlight this as one of my favourite pieces definitely go read it but my take on it was how ridiculous um, gender roles are and then how easily it can be flipped over it was such a joy to read um, yeah. and what was your take on that one?
1: Yeah, um, people get very focused on, on the exterior of the thing, as they should, you know, like with gender pay gaps and things. I, fair enough. But there is something that underlines, uh, underlies all this. Um, and it's a particular sensibility that, that is, that is allowed to be cultivated. Uh, and I think if you, if you wanted to, get to the heart of the patriarchy. Uh, Simmering is a fantastic story for seeing how the patriarchy functions and how there's a certain um, engagement through both genders with the patriarchy, a sort of a silent agreement that is um, oppressive, particularly for women but also for men. And I think Simmering um, really highlights that in a really funny winky way where you just come away from it going, well, that was a joy. Ah, but it's got me thinking. Something like that. Was that your reaction to it, Shannon?
0: Yeah, um, that definitely was my reaction in terms of it was funny uh, because you can just see she was poking fun of it. But then, uh, so we're talking about section three. Section four, it took that funny aspect um, of that patriarchy and feminism views and it became very dark in section four. There was a point, oh, I can't remember, the worship or iconography? No, that's not the right one.
1: Liking anyway. men, that's a very um, unsettling. Yeah, liking
0: men. That mm. was incredibly unsettling because you think it's very innocent and then it just goes dark very quickly. So these two pieces I think juxtapose nicely together in terms of the themes and motifs that Margaret Atwood brings to the table in her writing.
1: Yeah. Liking Men is actually a piece I used to teach uh, when when I was teaching. I I used to use Liking Men um, because it's a great example of how you take a series of images um, uh, and motifs and then you defamiliarize them in the moment and how unsettling that is for people because they feel like they've established a language and the language suddenly shifts on them. Mm. Um, so it's a really good one for that. Bread is another good one in its use of second person. Um, bread is incredible in its use of second person actually, because it sets up a situation where it plays with your sense of agency within the story as a reader. Um, and she does talk about texts and readers and writers and how we're all getting along in the moment um but in in bread she really or maybe this might be one more to read a tiny bit of should, should i yeah. indulge myself i will i will imagine a piece of bread you don't have to imagine it it's right here in the kitchen on the breadboard in its plastic bag lying beside the bread knife now i'm going to interrupt myself isn't that interesting imagine a piece of bread she says and then she takes that away from you she gives you the option and then pulls it away and says no no you've have all the power it's here it's right here look at look at look at it it's right there and so she's taking away all your power at the moment she says you have all of it which i think is marvelous the bread knife is an old one you picked up at an auction it has the word bread carved into the wooden handle you open the bag pull back the wrapper cut yourself a slice You put butter on it, then peanut butter, then honey, and you fold it over. Some of the honey runs out onto your fingers and you lick it off. It takes you about a minute to eat the bread. This bread happens to be brown, but there's also white bread in the refrigerator, and a heel of rye you got last week, round as a full stomach then, now going mouldy. Occasionally you make bread. You think of it as something relaxing to do with your hands. Now, imagine a famine. Imagine a piece of bread. Both of these things are real, but you happen to be in the same room with only one of them. Put yourself into a different room. That's what the mind is for. You are lying on a thin mattress in a hot room. The walls are made of dried earth and your sister, who is younger than you are, is in the room with you. She is starving. Her belly is bloated. Flies land on her eyes. You brush them off with your hand. You have a cloth too, filthy but damp, and you press it to her lips and forehead. The piece of bread is the bread you've been saving for days, it seems. You're as hungry as she is, but not yet as weak. How long does it take? When will someone come with more bread? You think of going out to see if you might find something that could be eaten, but outside the streets are infested with scavengers, and the stink of corpses is everywhere. Should you share the bread or give the whole piece to your sister? Should you eat the piece of bread yourself? After all, you have a better chance of living. You're stronger. How long does it take to decide? And of course, there is no decision, right? She's saying you're going to eat the bread. You're going to kill your sister, Shannon. And it's a very clever, clever use of second person in that I think to a certain extent you do feel complicit you do feel like you're making these choices and that you've made them freely and that Margaret Atwood hasn't just set up the whole thing to mess with you. Uh, and that is marvellous and it's a great example of, of how you can use different points of view uh, to create different effects.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that she does a great job of making the mundane something special. Mm. And, you know, this is covering a piece of bread and yet, She's made it something other. I don't think anything that Margaret Atwood does is heavy-handed at all, which is why I love her so much. Mm. You, reading her work, you come to the conclusion that she wants you to, but very subtly that you don't even know you're exactly where she wants you to be.
1: Yeah, it's it's really masterful. There's a real economy mm. to it.
0: Yeah, and then uh so Brett is in section three as well yes. and with women's novels and happy endings. Uh, so I do want to talk about women's novels, but I want to read a quote out of happy endings first. Uh, so in terms of writing courses, we always get told you need to have a plot. It's so important. This needs to happen at this section. Then you have to have the climax and then a drop-off back to the normal world, et cetera.
1: Hero's so, journey.
0: Yeah, the hero's journey, Mm. uh, she puts it on her head in, once again, a witty and pithy manner, very Margaret Atwood style. But this is my favourite line from Happy Endings. Because a commitment is a commitment. He goes on about this more than necessary, and Mary finds it boring, but older men can keep it up longer, so on the whole, she has a fairly good time. So the reason why I love this is because... And obviously, older men could keep talking on for a very long time, but I think she's also referring to his um, penis and sexual pleasures. But you, in that moment, you don't know. Uh, such a great little passage line.
1: It is too, because also, I mean, you know, older men can last longer because they can't get there. Um, so, in a sense, it's a it's an expression of a certain kind of impotence—the banging on. Uh, you know, and God knows, sometimes I feel I might be exactly that in this podcast, but, uh, (laughs) but hopefully we're all having more or less a fun time. Um, yeah, it's, it's great, isn't it? And, and this whole thing about plots, John and Mary die, John and Mary die, John and Mary die. Um, I, I've always sort of felt instinctively what she talks about in that story, but she just makes it clear. and I, I don't know that I would ever have managed to find that degree of clarity, but it's right there. It's, it's another thing I used to teach in my writing classes, the John and Mary die part, because it's the bit in the middle that is the most interesting and the hardest to work with. And a lot of writers, particularly writers in writing courses of the certain type that you and I don't like, Shannon, uh, they're obsessed with beginnings and endings, uh, which is the least interesting part of any text it's all the stuff in the middle yeah and what about I I wanted to ask you about women's uh what is it women's novels is that what it's called yeah I was just
0: asking you about women's novels
1: Oh, I'm gonna ask you as as you start writing
0: because you're a man you can't possibly write a woman's novel
1: oh no you can oh yeah that's right I can I'm allowed to no, I wanna I wanna hear your thoughts on women's novels. I think it's a it's a really good piece and God knows why we didn't uh talk about it last episode actually, because it perfectly fit what we were discussing.
0: Yeah. Um definitely check out Last Week podcast. Mm. And one of the things we talked about is that women are not as recognized in terms of awards and apparently people can uh tell the difference between masculine writing and feminine writing and there's only so many topics that a woman can Excuse
1: should... me. Sorry about that. <laughs>
0: um, there's only so many topics that women can write about. And so in women's novels, she once again lays it down on the table and pokes fun into it. She pokes all these holes into the arguments that people make about this ridiculousness. Uh, you use the word so often tediousness of uh, the distinction between what we can and can't write
1: yeah and and I think um, I think Margaret Atwood understands the importance of the reader too, uh and that mm. obviously you know women read men's novels. she talks about that, but she actually talks about it, doesn't she? She talks about the fact that men don't we read, read women's novels, so this is obviously not a new phenomenon yeah, um, and she talks about men's novels are about how to get power, which was what I was sort of clumsily referring to with dragons.
0: Yeah, so men's novels are about how to get power, killing and so on, or winning and so on. So are women's novels, though the method is different. In men's novels, getting the woman or women goes along with getting the power. It's a perk, not a means. In women's novels, you get the power by getting the man. The man is the power but sex won't do. He has to love you.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so basically, I think we just really love this book, don't we? <laughs> it sort of boils down yeah. to.
0: So this is my first book of Margaret Atwood, although I have heard a lot about her. What other books would you recommend to people after having read this to move on to?
1: Um, well, if you really love this one, it, it's companion piece. It's uh, Good Bones. Good Bones is uh, f- features a lot of fairy tale figures. It's told from the points of view of the less desirable women in various uh, fairy tales, you know, Cinderella's sisters kind of stuff. In this, I think Margaret Atwood is walking arm in arm a little bit with Angela Carter uh in that particular preoccupation which which i think is really interesting um so i would recommend that one which is not one that people would immediately say yeah that's that's got to be at the top of the list but i think it should be i think people should really read her poetry uh yeah an affair with raymond chandler what a joy but i'll stop there uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've read it aloud to people quite a few times because I, I just think it's delightful. Now, obviously, the ha- *A Handmaid's Tale* is is a, is a um, oh, *The Handmaid's Tale*. Sorry, is is a very important book in her oeuvre. I don't know if this is correct. It would be fascinating to get her on the podcast and get, get it from the horse's mouth. But I feel like something really significant happened in *Murder in the Dark* that did shift her work a kind of maybe a bit more of an awareness of her place in writing or of anyone's place in writing. I feel like the books become slightly more written after Murder in the Dark, and I don't mean that in any kind of uh, negative sense, just that there's a sort of a, a subtext of an awareness of meaning or or something of that nature, but there just seems like there's a a significant shift, and you do see it in things like The Blind Assassin, yes, Uh, which is, you know, a really interesting postmodern novel. The Blind Assassin, you get it in hardback, folks. Um, Yeah, I mean, I've got so many of her novels. There's one with a heart in the title. You know what we need to do here, Shannon? Don't rely on old Gareth with his failing memory to, to give recommendations. I think we should probably just chuck up the a The Heart bunch. Goes Last. The Heart Goes Last, yes, I really enjoyed that book. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I'm not the guy to go to for these kinds of recommendations because I only have vague impressions of books about a month after I've read them. It's a rare, rare yeah. book that sticks in my mind, you know, like Murder in the Dark. I mean, murder in the dark is stuck in my mind. It's just moving across the
0: screen. Well, I'll read a quick um, plot of uh, The Heart Goes Last. Living in 2010, sorry? 2015. You're very close. Hmm. Uh, Living in their car, surviving on tip, Charmaine and Stan are in a desperate state. So when they see an advertisement for consilience, a social experiment offering stable jobs and a home of their own, they sign up immediately. All they have to do in return for suburban paradise is give up their freedom every second month, swapping their home for a prison cell. At first, all is well, but then unknown to each other, Stan and Charmaine develop passionate obsessions with their alternate the couple that occupies their house when they are in prison. Soon the pressures of conformity, mistrust, guilt, and sexual desire begin to take over.
1: Mm, That's ringing a lot of bells, yeah. I think actually, did that for our book club. Oh, did you? Yeah, it must have been a few years ago now. But yeah, and I, I don't know if that's considered one of um Margaret Atwood's great novels. I do recall being very uh affected by it, but I seem to recall there was a bit of disagreement in the group as to its as to its overall merits. Mm. I think it's I think it's a relatively lit- literary science fiction novel.
0: Yeah. Kind of reminds me of a Rick and Morty episode of the Night People, where uh, the the Night People are doing all their chores and stuff. <laughs> anyway, that's probably what that episode is based on.
1: And that's that's a good that's that's actually a really good analogy. Yeah, it's a sort of a punishment by proxy thing.
0: Mm. I suppose I, in terms of. Uh, Some of the stories in section one, it very much reminded me of free writing, so Virginia Woolf style, especially the boy's own annual 1911. She starts off in a, uh, what's the one, an attic, and then somehow she's outside, somehow she's in the pyramids of Egypt, and then she's back with her grandma's cow and so forth. Uh, Very cool. And I think we should, because next week's podcast, we are going to be doing some creative uh, writing uh, exercises inspired by this book. So we should try another free writing one.
1: That's a good idea. Let's start with that one. Grandmother's
0: Attics. Yeah. In terms of Murder in the Dark, it is – it pokes fun at a lot of uh, structures that we think are settled. And uh, you recommended a movie to me last night, See How They Run – And that is a movie example of what Margaret Atwood is doing. uh, Is they're making fun of um, Agatha Christie. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. Agatha Christie um, mystery crime novels, uh, whodunits, and throughout the whole film, they're just poking fun of this setup that happens. And she's even in the movie. Oh, it was such a good scene where she whacks the bad guy over the head with a shovel, and then she's going ready to like just chop his head off, <laughs> and then they have to stop her. Oh, it was great. Um, so yeah, and, and there's actually,
1: lot- there's there's also quite a serious element in that film. It's dealt with incredibly lightly. It's just kind of laid on the table and left there to stare at you.
0: And what is, is that?
1: The the appropriation of real life crimes into fiction and the effects it yeah. has on the people left behind. And, you know, The Mousetrap was a real play. Oh, it was a real play. It remains a real play. Um, and it's uh, the, the longest running play in British history. Oh, I assume in, in history generally, really. Oh, Wow. Yeah, yeah, it just kept going and going and going. That was part of the joke. They were waiting for it to be ready for the film rights, but first it had to stop being a play, uh, and it never has. So that would have been a real pain for the producer. Oh,
0: so that
1: man's story was a true wolf story. Oh, yeah, yeah, and they had Richard Attenborough in there, who, of course, was in um, Brighton Rock, which uh, we referenced in one of our earlier
0: Ah, oh, yes, we did too
1: Episodes, see yeah, how we're linking them together Neatly, Very, uh, Organically,
0: them. I assure yeah, missing, you yeah. Um, But yeah, uh, so it does deal with uh, a serious element as well But I think the similarities between Murder in the Dark and see how they run uh, There's a, the director gets killed and he creates how the story's going to end And that's pretty much how the story ends So throughout this whole movie, they're just unraveling Things that we get told that we should do, but we don't do. No, things that we should do. And actually, Margaret Atwood made a point in the podcast I was listening to that there used to be no creative writing schools when she was around. No one told you what you should and shouldn't do. So you just did whatever you want. And somehow we've been pigeonholed into what we can do and what is allowed and what isn't. So I think uh, this breaks those barriers apart really well. And so did that movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and the movie's filled with sort of a good-humoured – I mean, it's poking fun at Agatha Christie, but in, in a very reverential way. Uh, yeah. It's full of joy. It's full of joy, and, and, and it's very much – I think you're right. I think it's very reminiscent of the tone of Murder in the Dark and quite a lot of Atwood's writing in general, which somehow manages to be both profound and funny, uh, a little bit sad and full of joy. Uh, she's an amazing writer. Really, really amazing. I hope one day to um, produce a work that, you know, could sort of stand next to hers on the shelf, uh, given that our surnames are quite close together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And if, um, um, again, this was a five-star, there's just great stories in this that I think will resonate with a lot of different readers. And it's such a short book. You can read it once and then read it again and again. It really is a, a creative writing cleanser.
1: Oh, it, it really is. Um, yeah, no, this is a five-star book for me because whilst I don't think every single part of it is is a five-star piece of writing, they're very short pieces. I think that's extremely difficult to achieve. This book uh, changed my life, and it's one of the books that I have read multiple times. And actually can remember and describe in the middle of a podcast episode, which is, which is, you know, thrilling. If you're an emerging writer or if you're a writer that's already emerged, but think you could be doing better, uh, Murder in the Dark is almost like a creative writing primer in a way. It just doesn't tell you how to write. It shows you how you know you should write. Uh, and it, it's, it's really amazing. It's an amazing piece of work. Five stars all the way from me.
0: Yeah. And uh, so you chose uh, Murder in the Dark, and thank you very much. Uh, You've expanded my reading horizons once again. And so I would like to choose our next book to review, and we're heading from Canada all the way to South Korea, and this book is Curse of Bunny by Bora Chung.
1: Oh, my, that's exciting. Just in time for Christmas.
0: Yes, I specifically chose it because um, one of the Scandinavian countries reads a horror book for Christmas. Do you remember what country it is, Gareth?
1: I don't off the top of my head, but, you know, that was certainly the English tradition up until A Christmas Carol, which, by the way, it was a horror story, sort of established a new version of the Western Christmas. Christmas was mm-hmm. a time of ghosts and the undead. And it was a much more much more interesting time than it is now, and obviously the cursed bunny is more of an Easter thing, we might say. But let's just say that Easter is coming to Christmas, folks, and it's going to get pretty messed up. And uh, we'll be here to wear bunny ears and enjoy it with you.
0: I'm just going to read a very short bio on the book, and then I. Expect everyone to go out and buy it and get ready for our book review, which should release around Christmas. So, Cursed Bunny is a genre-defying collection of short stories by Korean author Boro Blurring the lines between magical realism, horror, and science fiction, Chung uses elements of the fantastic and surreal to address the very real horrors and cruelties of patriarchy and capitalism in modern society.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a good one. It, it's won quite a few awards, I believe. Um,
0: yes, and she actually came to Brisbane, and I missed it, and I'm so annoyed myself. I can't remember where I was, but she was here. Um, and also hats off to the translator, Anton Horst. Thank you so much for giving us this wonderful piece of work.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, I'm really excited about it. I actually went and I, I, um, I think you told me that we were going to read it. A while back because I went and bought a copy although I had completely forgotten so I was right on the edge of my chair then when you were announcing I thought what's it gonna be oh
0: classic Gareth (laughs) everything's a surprise when you forget
1: (laughs) oh yeah I know it's it's just fantastic um yeah so so that's gonna be very exciting and I think we should get some bunny ears um to wear on the on that episode
0: Sorry, someone should wear a Christmas hat and someone should wear bunny ears. Or maybe we should wear bunny ears
1: and a Christmas hat. And a Christmas hat, yeah. And have a little uh, a schnifter of um, brandy, perhaps with some, uh, some ice and herbs in it to make it more bearable. And, uh, you know, some fruit cake, perhaps. We'll, we'll really, we'll Christmas it up. We'll Christmas Easter it up. And okay. also get some horror and chills in there as well. Because if who, you can't be frightened on Christmas night, when can you be frightened?
0: Yeah, who does not want to come to that? I mean, honestly, if you're not there, you're a square. So that's right. my rule, is it? Yeah, that's close <laughs> be
1: enough. there or be square. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Um, squares.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so yeah, I oh, that was a great podcast. I really enjoyed uh, talking about that book. I'm really going to enjoy talking about Curse Bunny. Uh, when we do it. Join us for next week's podcast as well uh, because we're going to do some creative writing exercises uh, inspired by Murder in the Dark and we will see you all next week for that podcast.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Okay. See everyone.